Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of March 15th, 2021. I hope everyone finds some time to enjoy St. Patrick's Day this week. As the city of Chicago continued their tradition of dying the river green downtown over the weekend and St. Patrick's Day, at least for me, also serves as a great reminder that we are just a couple of weeks away from opening day. A very exciting time and we still have a couple of position groups to preview on this podcast. And this week, we'll be taking a look at the 2021 Chicago White Sox infield. This unit has great potential. Doesn't take a lot of squinting to see Jose Abreu, Nick Magical, Tim Anderson, Yohan Makata, and Yasmani Grandal all posting three-plus war seasons. They have the ability to do so. But will injuries, age regression, or vengeance from the Babab gods get in the way of this unit being one of the best infields in all of Major League Baseball? Oh, and who is going to be the opening day DH? And who's going to be Yasmani Grandal's primary backup? We'll try to answer those questions and answer your questions at the end of this podcast in P.O. Sox. Joining me for this episode first is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Howdy. Second, making this a three-man weave show is a fellow editor at SoxMachine.com and White Sox Twitter rabble rouser. It's Patrick <laughs> Nolan, but in these parts, we know him as P. Knowles. And hello, P. Knowles. Thanks for joining Jim and I. 
Absolutely. Glad to be back on the show. I'm a little worried, though, because the three man weave was usually when I uh, struggled in basketball practice when I in grade school. So <laughs> it scared me a little bit here. Well, if what? you do poorly, we'll turn it into knockout. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So quickly, before we get into the infield preview, uh, let's talk a little bit about what has happened this past week in spring training. Uh, some good sights. Yasmani Grandal has appeared in a game on Monday against the Chicago Cubs. Always fitting. Dylan Cease is going to be making his first appearance. We've also seen Carlos Rodon throw in a game. And, and Jim, you know, the White Sox actually won games this week. Uh, so that's a step forward, mm-hmm. I guess, if you care about uh, the win-loss record during spring training, but any particular performances, good or bad, that caught your eye this past week? Well, the I would say in good, uh, I would say the important thing is health and just that, you know, Yasmani Grandal, as you mentioned, he, uh, you know, he appeared as a DH. He has not yet caught a game. I think that's what I'm worried about is just waiting for him to catch a game, waiting for Nick Madrigal to appear in regular action and, and start to look like they're ready for an opening day roster. So I think that's what I'm most concerned about. But I think if you can set aside those concerns temporarily, or at least say that they're on a program and their playing time or lack thereof is just cautious and with opening day in mind, then I think, you know, the steady progression, having everybody more or less getting their reps, the pitchers being integrated, uh, all the other regulars besides Jose Abreu was off to late start, you know, getting into gear and looking okay at the plates, not striking out too much. Uh, I think that's more or less encouraging. You know, some lines are less impressive than others, but nobody looks like they're completely messed up or physically compromised or anything where you really start to worry. Anyone in particular that's caught your eye out of spring training camp so far, P. knows is again, we're just two weeks away from opening day. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that uh, kind of, kind of along the lines of what Jim said, I, I feel like health is the the biggest key in spring training for me. I think that, you know, we've, we've seen situations in the past where guys perform really well in the spring and it just turns out to be, you know, spoken mirrors by the time the regular season rolls around. I will say, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see that Michael Kopech's stuff is still intact after, you know, a while away from the game. And uh, it, it is nice to hear at least, you know, anecdotally that Reynaldo Lopez is, is doing something different with his arm action. Um, you know, if he's really cleaned up his mechanics, then, then that could go a long way because um, obviously what's been going on with him the last couple of years hasn't been all that encouraging and uh, just getting him to change getting him to change for the better uh, would, would be great. So hopefully his results in the regular season um, live up to how people are saying he looks improved in camp. Well, let's not waste any time uh, as far as getting to our primary topics for this podcast, because I think it's going to generate a lot of conversation. It's been generating a lot of conversation I'd say for the past month uh, when it comes to the Chicago White Sox roster And, you know, White Sox have been pondering about it since it became clear that Rick Hahn or the White Sox front office were not going to bring in another bat to be their primary DH. And that question is, who is going to be the primary DH or even the opening day DH for the 2021 Chicago White Sox? Before we answer that question, the Tony La Russa is bonding well with the clubhouse tour continues as James Fegan of the athletic wrote about how this team is continuing to get along with La Russa uh, quotes from Lucas Giolito uh, in regards to maybe it was overblown as far as on how this young roster would mesh with La Russa, who's been out of the game managing since 2011 and even La Russa admitting that it's still a process. They still have a long way to go as far as in the bonding part. But I bring this point up, Jim, because in the last couple of seasons, 
we knew that Rick Hahn had more say on who was going to be on the 26 man roster than manager Rick Renteria. The circumstances were different than they are today. There really wasn't a point in trying to put out the best roster possible because the team was in a rebuilding mode. And quite frankly, winning wasn't all that all important. So if you can get an extra year as far as with service time manipulation, Rick Hahn thought it was worthwhile. But now that this is a contending season and there is the DH gap to address, who do you think will get final say in a couple of weeks when the 26-man roster is finalized and they head to Anaheim, Jim? Tony LaRussa or Rick Hahn? I would hope it's LaRussa just because he's ultimately in charge of putting together the lineups and the rotation and uh, staggering starters and uh, you know, doling out the workload in the bullpen. And with this roster, as you mentioned, trying to contend, uh, from the get-go, which is relatively new last year counted, but last year's also messed up with the 60-game schedule, so it was basically a sprint. This is more of a marathon. But even then, it's just, you know, when you look at the, the lineup and the rotation, there aren't really any question marks, I think, you know, as we talk about this infield and, and the bench and so forth. I think the any kind of positional battles are more or less interchangeable. Like, you know, some guys might serve more purpose at the start of the season. And then some guys might be worked in, you know, May or June, if some guys aren't hundred percent, but ultimately like the starters are the starters, bench players are the bench players. If a bench player step in, you know, cross your fingers and hope that they can be adequate for whatever amount of time. So I think with LaRusa, if we're talking about like service time consideration or uh, handling pitchers or the, the, the topics that I think are the most controversial or at least have the most weight, I think, I'd rather defer to the manager in that regard and say like, who are you going to, who are you going to use? Who makes your lineup whole? Who -hmm. makes you feel like you're putting other guys, like the trickle down effect, who makes you feel like if you're batting this guy first, you can bat this guy ninth. Or if you bat this guy fifth, you can bat this guy seventh. You know, who makes the lineup balanced and even and and doles out the responsibility uh, and expectations accordingly. So, you know, you're not asking too much of weaker players and not uh, saddling uh, players who might be ready to contribute either in, well, not Charlotte, but Taxi Squad or the alternate training site. And I and Pinos, I mentioned that the circumstances are different because we already know that Garrett Crochet and Michael Kopak are going to be part of the White Sox bullpen. And I have to believe, Pinos, that if Rick Hahn is cool with that, maybe even pushing for that, then I have to think that he's not going to stand in the way if Larusa tells Hahn, listen. Andrew Vaughn is one of the 26 best guys that we've got. And I'm bringing Andrew Vaughn with me to Anaheim and he's going to be on the opening day roster. Do you think Han's going to be cool with that? Or do you foresee any type of pushback? Because again, with the service time manipulation, Vaughn hasn't played any minor league baseball. If the White Sox wanted to play that game, they still can with their 2019 first round pick. I, I am kind of, I, I feel like there is going to be an extension. I don't know why I feel that way, but I feel hmm. like that's, that's going to be something that takes place that just kind of gets rid of the discomfort on both sides. And we've seen it happen, you know, a couple, a couple of times already. So there is, there is precedent for this. Um, I, 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 I hate to say this, but I really do think that in the absence of an extension, I mean, the White Sox have done this before. I feel like they, they probably would send Vaughn down and I don't like that just because it's not like they didn't even pretend to get some sort of, you know, random quad, even a quad a guy. They didn't, they didn't, didn't get anybody to be that kind of placeholder. I I think that they feel like, you know, it's not Vaughn, it's going to be Zach Collins, which, you know, that's, 
I guess against a right-handed pitcher, maybe you could do worse against a lefty. You don't really have a, you know, a lot of options there. Um, but, and I mean, maybe that's fine. The White Sox are so good against lefties otherwise that maybe that doesn't sting them too bad. But um, that, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. I think that I, I, I think that something is going to happen as far as an extension is concerned to try to just alleviate the whole problem, because I, it, this is just embarrassing. You can't, you can't have this little of a backup plan and send it, what's he going to work on his defense? Like what's he, what's the story there? They they really don't have a good way to explain it away. Jim, I haven't even thought about an Andrew Vaughn extension. Would that even come close to what Aloy or Luis Robert signed? Yeah, I don't know. That's I I think the, you know, there is a precedent that the White Sox have signed extensions uh, or players to extensions in uh, spring training before they played a game, but Vaughn hasn't played a game above uh, high A, you know, so I think that's the one uh, big difference. And so I could see a case where, you know, thinking about the Mariners situation and how uh, they, you know, Kevin Mather basically threw Evan White under the bus for signing uh, a, a, an extension, a pre-career or pre-MLB uh, extension that was too cheap for the union or the union wasn't happy with six years, 24 million. And it seems like, you know, given the risk of, or I, I guess the inherent risk of signing a, a guy who has not played above Winston-Salem, you could argue that price down and say that's more, that's closer to what he deserves than say the 47 to 50 million that Jimenez and Robert signed for. But at the same time, just it's, you know, Vaughn is accomplished enough. He's, you know, he's not having a terrible spring. Like say, you know, Eloy, when he signed the extension, he had a bit of a rough spring where they sent him down and uh, it seemed like, well, they could, you know, realistically uh, say that he just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, looked out of sorts and they want to get his timing back in Charlotte and wait two or three weeks and call him up. I mean, Vaughn looks just as good as anybody with the White Sox right now. He's got more walks and strikeouts. He's hitting above 300. The bats look professional. He doesn't look overwhelmed. So I think that's the case where, you know, you, you could look at that and say that maybe he is worth that 40 plus million. Um, so yeah, just the, the, the lack of precedence, both, you know, with the lack of experience above a ball and then with the pandemic last year and whatever alternate training site experience means, that's what makes it, you know, I guess I just want to say, I don't know, because I really, I'd be just guessing otherwise. Well, let's go into the question then, because we kind of tiptoed around it. And I'm with you, Jim. I think LaRusa should have the final call. You don't bring in Tony LaRusa to be your manager and micromanage his 26-man roster. I think he's going to have final say on what the 26-man roster is going to be. And I have a feeling he's going to bring Andrew Vaughn with him. So from my perspective, for the questions of who will be the opening day DH and who should be the opening day DH, because they could be separate answers. For me, for a while, it's been Andrew Vaughn. But Jim, we'll start with you. The first part of the question, who do you think will be the opening day DH? And the second part, who do you think should be the opening day DH? I'm kind of leaning towards Vaughn for both. And, you know, whether extension or not, just because, you know, uh, we do have the press then last year of sending Nick Magical down to Schaumburg and, and giving him nothing to work on. And then him coming up at a very convenient time. And, you know, that's a good point. They yeah, did, just, they tried to service time manipulation in a 60 game season. Yeah. So, you know, they have the case there where, you know, theoretically they have done it. And so I wouldn't expect them to, you know, deviate from that necessarily given the rich history of, holding guys down necessarily, but just like you, like you said, it's just, it's Tony La Russa. That's different. You know, I, I've been looking at his Cardinals experience, just trying to see what's, 
you know, while a lot of things have changed since he last managed, just there are still a lot of things about managing a roster, uh, you know, working guys in, uh, shifting around a bullpen, uh, you know, rotating guys, you know, bringing up rookies. Like a lot of things haven't changed about the job. So it seems like, you know, like as you mentioned, you bring him in because he's good at all that. You don't question uh, his ability to uh, do the, the interpersonal stuff, the knowing people, knowing players, knowing how certain players handle pressure or expectations better than others. So I'm hoping for this case that's Vaughn, just because, you know, given that he's a first baseman, given that he's slow, you know, he's first base only, he's right-handed, he's, uh, you know, he can't really play any other positions. I think if you want to sign him an extension down the road, you can. You might have to pay, you know, God forbid, nine figures to do so. You know, they, they, they might have to break that, that magic mark, but uh, they should be able to do it if they want to. And if they feel like they can get a better first baseman or equal first baseman on the line and spread that, you know, money to other positions of, more difficulty defensively then they may have a reason to do so but i think right now it's all about maximizing this year and basically the next three years while lucas giolito is under team control and then hopefully by that point you know they're carrying payrolls well above what they're doing right now and it's a whole different economic ball game for them to work contracts into all right pinos i'll pose the questions to you who do you think will be the opening day dh and who do you think should be the opening day dh yeah, I think, I mean, Vaughn for both. I mean, I've kind of already, I've made my prediction about the extension. I think that would definitely, um, that would definitely cover both of those situations. I think that, um, you know, obviously when the White Sox are this close in talent to the Minnesota Twins, like, yeah, I know it's not a huge fraction of the season to send him down to get like another, another year of service time. But I mean, this, this season really could come down to like minutiae like that, like just mm-hmm. 10 games of having a better designated hitter than just somebody that you're using to buy time. So I, I, I'm definitely hoping it's going to be Vaughn regardless of whether an extension has worked out. I, I just have so much skepticism about the White Sox that I'm worried it will be. Um, I, I guess Zach Collins would be the guy if the if absence an extension for me, but uh, yeah, I think I, I really hope it's Vaughn. What do you think the dollar figure would be for the extension? Oh gosh, that's, that's really putting me on the spot there. Um, huh? Well, um, gosh, I, is that just trying to pull a, just trying to pull a number out of my hat here? I don't know. Maybe you'd be thinking like, so I'm trying to think they'd probably do, they'd probably be doing something where they would give themselves an option to at least buy out at least one of those free agent years on the, mm-hmm. on the back end. Um, yeah, I'm thinking like six year value, like Evan White was six years, 24, Eloy, I think was 647. Robert was six for 50, I think. I think like in that in that range, probably something around like 40 million would probably be good for six years, I would think. I mean, Eloy's probably a more uh, more stable bat than than Vaughn was. I mean, Vaughn looks pretty good, but Eloy was by all by 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 most ranking systems uh, regarded a little bit higher than Vaughn at this point. Um and I, yeah, I think like you know, six forty is probably probably pretty good, and then tack a few option years onto that. Is that, is that enticing, especially with the CBA setting to expire and reading the tea leaves, it seems like the players union is the players themselves are starting to bond together here, Jim, uh, to, to try and show a united front is a six year, $40 million contract plus two option years going to be enticing enough for Andrew Vaughn who's barely played minor league baseball to sign that deal. 
I think it can be. Uh, yeah, I think for a lot of it comes down to personal circumstances, you know, the whole life changing money first big contract, it means more mm-hmm. to some people than others. That's like, like Lucas Giolito, where he comes from his background, like that's not you know, that kind of dollar figure. Uh, Those, yeah, the Chris Hill extension was off the table, like other bargain extensions pretty much off the table for him because he, he has, uh, you know, I think you know, based on his you know, financial background, his background with union work and his family's background, with union work, just, you know, that, that number is not going to register for him for Vaughn. I don't know, but it's more, I think it's like, that's closer to what it would take. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It could be the case too, where, you know, I think with extensions, like it took so many extensions before players realized like we're giving ourselves away for too cheap. So the numbers eventually went up. And I think with the pre-career stuff, it's still relatively new to know exactly what's a bargain and what's not. I think, you know, the, the Evan White, Scott Kingry deals, the six for 24s, those are clearly bad deals, you know, for players who are healthy and don't really have any reason to lock themselves up before they go sour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, we're still learning about the Jimenez, Robert, you know, right now they look like great deals, but just like, we're still learning. We don't have precedence for, how big of a hit rate they have, uh, whether there's any pitfalls in doing so. So I could see that being like more realistic to sign for. I don't think it makes a lot more sense to go higher because at that point you're just, it's superstar insurance after that. You're not really, there's no bargain for the team in doing yeah. so. It just more or less uh, protects the team from like, a, you know, like getting the next Mike Trout basically uh, or, or Francisco Lindor, Mookie Betts, like that level of player. But I think uh, once you get above 50, you're, there's really no point in the team doing that. So 40 is pretty close, I think, to the upper level of what's reasonable for both sides. Well, we did ask you, our followers and listeners, who you think should be the opening day DH. And again, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And 81% picked Andrew Vaughn. 10% picked Zach Collins. There's still the year of Mercedes bandwagon. They came at 5%. And then other was 3.4%. And uh, there was one nomination for Yasmani Grandal because his knee might be too sore to catch on opening day. And he may have to start the season as DH. And that is something interesting to ponder. And that's a nice little segue to the second pressing roster decision that Tony La Russa will have to make. And that is the primary backup catcher for the Chicago White Sox. And they brought in Jonathan Lucroy. And right now, Jonathan Lucroy is looking good during spring training. Uh, he's, you know, competing against Zach Collins and your Mercedes and Mercedes and Collins have looked better defensively, but I'm still questioning whether or not uh, they are actual catchers or worthy as far as catching on the major league level. So Pinos, I'll start with you here. The question is, who will be Asmani Grandal's primary backup catcher to start 2021? Who would be your pick? Yeah, I, I kind of, I'm kind of leaning more towards Jonathan Lucroy simply because there's more, there's more of a track record to suggest that he's a credible catcher. I know he's slipped defensively dramatically from what he once was, but at the same time, uh, you know, Zach, Zach Collins ha, has not shown the defensive chops to, to make many people convinced that he actually is a catcher. Um, I know the White Sox, like they're, they're really stubborn about, you know, guys that they, that they pick in the first round. And there's like, a, there's, I know that I could be wrong about this. And there's a good chance that they say, Hey, you know, it's now or never for this guy. We're going to put him in here and just, you know, see what he's got. But um, particularly if uh, in the event of an injury or Yasmani Grandal being rele- relegated to DH, 
I think that Luke Roy is a guy they're going to want to have around because if Collins doesn't work, it doesn't work out and just doesn't have the, you know, the receiving chops that, uh, that you'd want in a catcher, just having somebody who can do that job at a minimum is going to save them from, from really bottoming out at the position. How do you feel right now about Luke Roy being the primary backup catcher, Jim, over Zach Collins and your Mercedes? Well, the one thing I don't know about Lucroy is whether he has any opt-out language in his minor league contract that says by like oh, April, yeah. by like May 1st, uh, you know, does he get a chance to, you know, get his release granted and look for an op- other opportunity? Because, you know, if they stand a chance of losing him, if Grandal's knee is anything that, you know, warrants any kind of special concern, I could see them going with Lucroy just because they have the option of keeping Collins down or maybe carrying him as a third catcher and they just don't want to lose the only veteran catcher they feel good about. I will say about Collins that, you know, one thing that's kind of stood out to me is that he's only struck out once in 19 plate appearances this year. And that's something that's column I look for when it comes to young players, players on the, on the fringe of maybe making an impression, maybe suggesting something different about themselves is just seeing Collins with three walks to one strike over 19 plate appearances. I don't know if I thought it would be possible at any level for Collins to go 19 plate appearances and strikeout ones just because that's you know the hole in his swing has been a big part of his game and he's had success working around it in charlotte he's that you know that's dragged him down into other levels and just seems like something he has to manage or live with so that's something that's caught my attention and if the white Sox wanted to roll with him that's something that would maybe uh Give me more of an open mind about him being different this year. I will say I've been looking for Tony LaRusso's quotes, trying to find anything, and he's just been nonstop praise about everybody. So he's not tipping <laughs> his hand. That's like you could notice that with other catchers. Like I'm thinking with Collins, with like Josh Fegley in previous years, that some coach, whether it was Robin Ventura or Rick Renteria or a bench coach or something that, that like that, would say like he's got to work on his game calling, or the pitchers are not comfortable, or the pitchers might even say something about who they prefer working with. And there's been a lot of praise from the pitchers about Lou Croy. But nobody has said anything to the other why. Yeah, I think there hasn't been that kind of a uh, uh, little bit of a dagger to somebody else's uh, skills um, saying that they can't do it. I don't know if that's just because it's a new administration being super positive or whether it's just because players have improved enough to not stand out over a pretty small sample. Well, on Twitter, we asked you who will be the primary backup catcher out of the three options, Jonathan Lucroy. Zach Collins and Yuma Mercedes and Lucroy got 81% of the vote, just like Andrew Vaughn. Zach Collins got 16% and Yuma Mercedes got 2.4%. So at this point, I mean, I kind of want to go back though to what was proposed to us that, well, I think from one of our followers that I think the opening day DH is going to be Yasmani Grandal because his right knee as far as the swelling uh, still might impact him. He may not be ready to go to catch uh, to start 2021, at least catch Lucas Gilito and Grandal's the DH and Luke Croy is the opening day DH uh, against Andrew Heaney and the angels. How would you feel about that type of setup, Jim, to start the 2021 season? If Luke Croy has to come in and be the primary catcher, at least for the first series. I think I'd be nervous just because of the long-term implications of Grandall. Yeah, his importance to the team and being so vital, you know, being in a 120-game catcher is pretty vital to this whole operation, unless Collins has the leap that uh, none of us have foreseen. So I, I think if it's to the point where he can't catch open day, I'd rather see him, you know, down at the alternate training site, just you know, working on getting conditioning up. And I think that's one case where Schaumburg would serve a guy well, just being able to crouch, get up and down, make all the necessary catcher motions, uh, face some live pitching, and then, you know, work his way back into Chicago. Whereas, you know, 
a guy like Collins who just needs to play somehow against live competition that's trying to embarrass him, you know, I, I think uh, that doesn't necessarily help him. But I think, you know, if Grandal can't catch, then I'd rather see him for the long-term interest just be sitting the first week or two then, or doing what he needs to get back behind the plate. Well, he still has some time during spring training, and it's, it sounds like he, as in Grandal and Larusa, are pretty optimistic that Grandal is going to be ready to go on opening day and no setbacks. And taking a look at the 2021 Zips projections for Yasmani Grandal, if you look at any projection system, Yasmani Grandal is the early favorite to be the most valuable position player for the White Sox, not just because of his offense, but also because of his defensive ability uh, to help out as far as a pitching staff and with his catch framing. And Zips penals, the number that jumps out to me is games played for Grandal is 131. Now, Grandal is quickly approaching the other side of the aging curve. Uh, we can't expect all catchers to be magnificent uh, post th- age 32 because of the wear and tear of the position. Not every catcher could be like Yadi or Molina as Molina still chugging along. Uh, but Zip still thinks that Grandal could hit 23 home runs this year, drive in 74 runs. Uh, his slash line, the batting average is never all that impressive with Grandal. Zips is projecting 227, uh, but a 345 on base percentage and slug 432. When you pair that with Grandal's defense, Zips is thinking Grandal could be a four war player. And for the White Sox catchers, as we have had conversations many times in the past years, they struggled just to get four war with all the catchers that they have played uh, in a season. So I would definitely take as far as that type of season projection from Yasmani Grandal in 2021, what are your expectations for the second year that we get a chance to see Grandal in a White Sox uniform? Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I think that those expectations laid out by zips are pretty reasonable. I mean, he's a pretty established guy at this point in his career. Um, definitely. I mean, obviously, you know, the knee, the knee situation is not something we wanted to hear, but as far as catchers are concerned, uh, he's had about as good a health track record as you could really want. Um, so I, I think that, I, I think that zips is, uh, you know, this is the type of player that zips is pretty good at nailing down. I think that that's uh, that's a pretty reasonable expectation for what we'll see. I mean, if there's one thing, situ- there's one area that I think we all hope he could improve. It's that there were too many plays late in the game where he wound up dropping the ball in a critical situation, whether it was a play at the plate or that one foul ball that, that he dropped that wound up to, I mean, I think he, I think that might've been the one he corrected by hitting a game winning home run at the bottom of the ninth. But, uh, but at the same time, I think that, you know, that that's kind of been a known problem with him before he came in. I mean, there's, that that's the sort of frustration that kind of comes with playing Yasmani Grandal. Uh, we know what's good about him. He walks, he hits for power. He frames pitches. That's really all we want. And we hope that continues. And Jim, you know, kind of continuing as far as our trend in the past couple of podcast episodes, when we talked about the starting pitchers and the relievers, when it comes to Grandal, what would you think would be a successful 2021 season for Yasmani Grandal? I would say, you know, using, you know, fan graphs, whatever, whatever framing, whatever, I guess, win system includes framing, I would say three mm. or better would be adequate, especially since there's a lot of soft skills that come into catching. Like just if, if, you know, he has like a slightly disappointing season, but Dylan Cease looks great and Lance Lynn delivers on his uh, one year of control that we know of so far that uh, the pitching all comes together. Then I think you feel good about what he offers. And uh, you know, certainly we've seen worse from White Sox catchers to where, 
they don't need stardom from the position in order to succeed. They just need somebody who can help pitchers out. And I think he'll provide that no matter what. So I think nice thing about a four, one projection is even disappointments fine. So yeah. <laughs> is it too strong of an expectation for me to say that Yasmani Grandel should be the best catcher in the American league? I'd hmm. say that he, he's got to be, he's got to be pretty close to the favorite for that. Right. I mean, like there's, you know, there's, there's definitely other guys that could, that could step into that, but I, I think that he's, he's got to be uh, as far as the American league is concerned, probably my, my rank number one. I mean, obviously there's Salvador Perez, right? P knows. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Don't do that to me. <laughs> Salvador Perez could make the all-star team from the injured list. <laughs> he could. He really Probably could. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, John, Jim, is that too strong of an expectation? No, because when I, I look it's... at the American League, I, I, yeah. I, I keep seeing the catcher depth and it, I keep coming back to this. You know, I my bold prediction this year is that the White Sox will have six all-stars. Grandal is one of my all-stars out of that six just because I do think he is the best catcher in the American League. Yeah, I think that's more or less there. I had to think about it for a second just because I'm so used to thinking about Yasmani Grandal and James McCann as being the best tandem in baseball. So I had to separate, I had to filter right. out McCann from that equation just to think <laughs> what, what, how are the White Sox with just Grandal and replacement level catcher behind them? And, and what is Grandal offering? Like, yeah, it's pretty, pretty much clear in terms of who's established now, like a guy like Sean Murphy, maybe might be ready to take the next step and Good point. challenge Grandal at the top, you know, based on just uh, development aging curve, you know, how he looks on both sides of the plate. But for the time being, knowing what we know, knowing how they project, yeah, it seems like Grandal is the favorite. Well, those are the two pressing roster items that the White Sox will have to face. Again, who is going to be the primary opening day DH and who is going to be the primary backup catcher to Yasmani Grandal? Knock on wood, that primary backup catcher does not have to be the opening day starting catcher for the 2021 Chicago White Sox. Hopefully the swelling calms down for Yasmani Grandal's right knee, and he is 100% healthy and ready to go for opening day as the White Sox face the Angels, and Grandal is able to catch Lucas Giolito and Lance Lynn for the first two games of the 2021 season. Coming up next on this podcast, we'll talk about our expectations for Jose Abreu, Nick Madrigal, Tim Anderson, and Yohan Makata after a quick word from our sponsors. Cascade Platinum every night saves you water every night. Come meet me at the dishwasher, baby. See, hand-washing dishes at your sink uses about four gallons of water every two minutes. Naughty, naughty sink. But with Cascade Platinum at your dishwasher, four gallons of water gets the whole job done. So the flow of that H2O and change your routine. Do it every night with Cascade Platinum. A surprising way to save water. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. It's Jim Margulis, Patrick Nolan, and I continue our 2021 Chicago White Sox infield preview. Now we move over to Jose Abreu, the rating American League MVP. And when you look at the Zips projections, Zips is projecting 29 home runs for Abreu, 
112 RBIs. That number is important because Zips believes that Abreu will lead the American League in 2021 in RBIs and a slash line that really fits in what Abreu has done with his career at the Chicago White Sox with a 274 batting average, 324 on base percentage, and slugging 502. I think one of the expectations is that Abreu will continue to perform as one of the best offensive first basemen in the American League. But this is a question that we're going to ask. We started to ask it a little bit last year. We're going to ask this year. We're going to ask next year. And when Abreu's contract expires, we'll ask this question again. But Jim, the aging regression, we believe is going to catch up maybe to Jose Abreu. Perhaps Jose Abreu is the next Nelson Cruz. And he's, he's, he's this ageless wonder that just continues to hit late into his 30s and into his 40s. But do you think Jose Breu can continue to fight off the aging regression that so many projection systems believe is coming for Abreu? I think so. I think, you know, the, the tricky thing about evaluating Abreu at this point is the MVP and just the shape of his, I, I guess, like the shape of his production over the course of 60 games, because through 21 games last year, he had a 701 OPS. And then he basically caught fire for a month and a half. And then, you know, over the course of a 162 game season, you might have the same exact thing, but you know, you know, maybe it might be a, a cold, you know, first 20 games and then like slowly heating up, catching fire in July, then, you know, having an ordinary August and September, like there's like a lot of, you know, blank space that, you know, we don't know what to account for because that blank space just wasn't there. It was just, uh, it was distilled down to 60 games and it was a cold 20 and a hot 40. And so what do you, what do you do with that? And, and I, I think for the White Sox, I think my concern would be like, uh, given that they're still a little bit aggressive and that they still have like maybe a walk to strikeout disparity and they're maybe a bit too reliant on Babbitt, like, are they a bit too reliant on Abreu being closer to MVP than just like an ordinary above average bat first first baseman who, you know, tends to expand the strikes on a little bit too much? I think it's my concern. I think he'll you know, he still has a lot of room to regress down and still be an above average contributor and you know, delivering on his contract and making people happy he's around. But just in terms of the offense being special, I just wonder how it reliant it is on Abreu being special. And really the 60 game season just might've been a really warped sample of him at his like, you know, least impressive and him at his most impressive. Well, I guess that's a good follow-up question for you, P. Knowles. Do you think that Jose Breu still has to be the main offensive cog for the 2021 Chicago White Sox, or is, are we ready for Aloy Jimenez to replace Abreu as that main offensive cog? I mean, I think it's a great bet that Jimenez will wind up with a better offensive season than Abreu, but I don't know that the White Sox necessarily need Abreu to be better than Jimenez at this point. I mean, they've, they've got to the point where they've, they have a very complete lineup and they have, you know, they, I think that, I think that they probably, you know, assuming hopefully Eaton resembles his former self, and maybe you could say they got nine guys who could hurt you. Uh, well, with Abreu, I mean, I, I, my expectations for him this season is that he's going to be, you know, a, an above average overall player. Like, I think that he's probably going to, my, I'm, guessing he'll be somewhere around like the three war range. If you want to use that scale, um, I. He's definitely somebody who looked like his career was going the wrong direction for a couple of years, and then as Jim mentioned, that outbreak happened. 20 games into last season and it might that's the best stretch I could remember seeing from any hitter that that week where he just was hitting nonstop home runs was just crazy 
And one thing about him last year is he definitely did seem to be in better physical condition than he had been in previous years. And as you, you know, truck into your thirties, what kind of shape you keep yourself in is going to have a lot of say at what level you can play at. And I think that if he, you know, keeps to whatever exercise regimen that, that kept him, you know, looking like the way he did last year, then, then yeah, I could see him staving it off and being a dangerous hitter for a few more years after this. Jim, if Tony La Russa does carry Andrew Vaughn, Onto the 26-man roster. How is that playing split? Or I guess I should ask, how do you envision that playing split at first base between Abreu and Vaughn? Is it 80% of the time that Abreu is at first base? Or do you think that Larusa will try to give more reps to Vaughn than 20% of the time? I would say 80% seems like a good, reasonable starting figure. And then maybe adjusting depending on how... Vaughn's faring at DH and whether they think like he needs to get a little bit more field time in order to find a groove at the plate. You know, if he succumbs to the DH weakness that sometimes, um, you know, players new to the position have. So I can see it being a case where, you know, maybe he has like a couple weeks where it's more 50, 50, just to try to, you know, put something into Vaughn's bats. But uh, I think for the time being, just given he's coming off an MVP season, given that you don't want to mess with him at all, you know, you don't really mm-hmm. want to, give him a reason to, or give anybody a reason to say like, Oh, here's why he is declining. I mean, looking at his numbers last year, like you, besides the better physical condition, like the batted ball stuff was better, uh, fewer grounders, more exit velocity, um, not pulling the ball to the left side, you know, left side, shortstop, third baseman, uh, that, that was a whole lot better. So it seems like you don't want to mess with him too much given, you know, that he's in the you know mid thirties and things could tilt the wrong way. If you know, think some, kind of uh, part of his swing or some part of his approach or bat speed gets away from him. So I don't think you want to mess with him too much either. So I think uh, you try to stick to the same balance as before where you rotate a occasionally through the DH spot. But for the time being, I think you let Andrew Vaughn DH, you see how he does and then see if you need to uh, change anything from there. Our show poll for Jose Abreu and Pinos, I posted an over under for our fans, listeners, and the over under is 105 and a half RBIs in 2021 for Jose Abreu. Would you take the over or the under for that total? I'll take the over. I think that this this offense is probably going to score like gangbusters. I mean, I think that he's going to be in a, especially given that Abreu aside from like a couple of freak situations has generally been able to get on the field for most of the games of the season. I think that's a big reason why he's posted as many hundred plus RBI seasons as he has. And I think that this is probably going to be, you know, maybe a close tie with last year, the, the best supporting cast he's had. So he'll probably have plenty of opportunities. So I'll take the over on the 105 and a half. How about you, Jim? Are you taking over or under? I think I take the over uh, just because it, it seems like the under, the reasons for the under are all just like injury based, like getting hit mm-hmm. by a pitch yeah, or just, you know, having a hamstring that costs them three weeks or something like that. And that's kind of a, a lame way to bet an over or betting under. So <laughs> yeah, it is. And again, uh, Zips believes that Jose Bray will lead the American league in RBIs. Juan Soto is the projected leader for all of major league baseball at RBIs with 141 projected in 2021. That is a crazy amount. Uh, but Hey, Abreu averaged an RBI per game last year. And if he does that in 2021, uh, it, would it be too crazy to think with this type of offense that a Bray you could put up 140 plus RBIs in a season? 
possible. I would, say, you know, I would say it's not crazy. I would say the one thing is depending on who's hitting in front of him and whether that person hitting in front of him empties the bases himself. Mm. Hmm. That's a good or question. If there's more power throughout the lineup, maybe the RBIs are spread out because they're more solo shots, uh, two-run homers in front of them. Yeah, maybe the situation where if Adam Eaton does have a renaissance and, be, and is batting second and becomes his former self and winds up posting an OBP of like, you know, like in the 350s right in front of Jose Abreu and it's and he's the type that doesn't hit too many home runs, that might set him set him up well. And I mean, Nick, Nick Madrigal, don't forget him. I mean, he's going to be on base plenty for, for Abreu if he's still batting at the bottom of the order. So I think that's, uh, he's going to have a lot of base runners and it's, it's going to take a combination of health and, you know, maybe just some, uh, I don't know. He, he, he has a reputation for being, you know, stepping it up in the clutch. It's probably going to take another season where his clutch numbers outpace his season long numbers, but it's, it's definitely not out of the question. I would say it's a, you know, right tail expectation for sure, but uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's in the equation. <laughs> it just, it just had me wondering, cause it's again, he averaged an RBI per game last year. If we don't think the offense is going to take too big of a step back, from 2020, if you think that they could be just as good or if not better in 2021, and if Abreu is still batting third and he's playing 140 plus games, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Abreu puts up 140 plus RBIs in a season. And I laugh because it's like he would be at 100 RBIs before we got to September. And that'd be great to see. Um, and we'll see if that does happen. But again, uh, Zips projects that Jose Bray will lead the American League in RBIs with 112. And I would even take the over on that total as well. Pino's mentioned Nick Madrigal. So let's move over to second base because this is becoming an interesting topic here. And it was one even after the season, Jim, when it was announced that Nick Madrigal needed shoulder surgery. And it did bring into some doubt at the time in October when we got the news of, will he be ready for opening day? Would Lurie Garcia need to step in and be the opening day second baseman for the Chicago White Sox if Madrigal is not 100% ready to go? At this point of spring training, as we inch closer to opening day, how do you feel about the chances of Nick Madrigal being that opening day second baseman for the White Sox? It seems like it's it's similar to the Grandal conversation in which, you know, if you judge it by what people are saying and how confident uh, people appear and, you know, any kind of doubt you know, or the lack of doubt introduced by management and below, that just seems like they're on a plan for him. They have a plan for him, they have an idea, and he'll be ready to go. But that's the one case where you talk about DH, you talk about catcher and, and you know, not having any kind of idea for who's really a, a you know, just in uh, a decent replacement for uh, Yasmani Grandal or, 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 you know, who's better than Andrew Vaughn. Like in this case, like, you know, if you start Garcia at second base for two weeks, who cares? <laughs> it's a, he's good enough. He provides a different enough game for Magical. You know, like he gets for more power. Uh, I think he's a little bit better of a base runner at this point um, that you just feel like if you had two weeks of Garcia, two weeks of Madrigal, you might not notice a difference because even like last year, Garcia stepped in for Anderson for 10 days and was fine. I, mm -hmm. I think he has the capability of having enough pop to where like he'll have a, a big game here or there and his OPS all of a sudden looks really good for the last two weeks and you feel okay about it. So that's a case where if Madrigal somehow, you know, if we're talking next week and he still has like, you know, fewer than 10 plate appearances under his belt, then I can see a case where, yeah, maybe they'd go down the alternate training site just make sure that he's ready doing all the baseball activities that he needs to do and uh, 
Garcia's fine. And then Danny Mendick's fine, you know, as a backup second baseman. So that's one position where I think they're well-stocked, relatively speaking, for, you know, credible major leaguers. Yeah, Louis Garcia during spring training is hitting 400 with a 520 on base percentage, slugging 700. He's got five walks to two strikeouts. Louis Garcia's taking <laughs> walks, folks. Uh, Pino's Nick Magical year two. We have made, I mean, much has been made about the lack of power from Nick Magical. Sure, it's 70 grade contact skills. This guy's got an opportunity to hit 320, 330, but the power's just not there. So, how is that going to look and how beneficial of an offensive profile? Is that for the Chicago White Sox in the future, especially for a league that with the type of velocity and spin that we're seeing from starting pitchers, you'd like to put the ball over the fence for instant offense because it's getting tougher and tougher to put the ball in play against the level of pitching that we're seeing in the league right now. What are you hoping to see from Dick Madrigal in his first full 162 game campaign? Well, you know, maybe the power comes, maybe it doesn't. I, I mean, as far as what he did at the plate last season, I think that that's, you know, perfectly palatable. If he can hit for that high of an average, um, my, my biggest things for him this year, are clean up the base running, clean up the defense. If he does those two things, the, the guy that we saw last year is actually an above average player, but he lost more runs on the base paths than any player in the league, except for, I think Ben Gamble. So like, you can't have somebody with his wheels. I mean, he, he's not, he's not going to be like the fastest guy in the field, but you know, somebody who's not like just a, a complete base clogger who is one of the worst base runners in the major leagues. You can't have that. And I think if he's even an average base runner and, you know, he, he came up and I think his fundamentals were praised in the minor leagues and he came up and he made, you know, several, he made gaffes on some, you know, makeable plays. And I think that if he cleans that up and there's just fewer mistakes, then I think that he could, he could be a thriving player, even without an improvement in the power department. I mean, but I will say, yeah, I mean, if the guy could hit like five home runs a season, that would definitely be helpful too. (laughs) Uh, Is that even possible, Jim? I am kidding. Uh, (laughs) But you know, for magical, what are your expectations, Jim, in, in the second year of uh, his time with the Chicago White Sox and his first full 162 game campaign. I think I'm basically with penals in terms of, you know, not expecting, I think his back can play. Uh, I think maybe he'll hit a couple over the fence, uh, just kind of a uh, buggy whip one inside a foul pole here or there <laughs> over a short wall or something like that. Um, with the shoulder, I can see a little bit of uh, a pop returning to where the, you know, the exit velocity is maybe like in the, mid to high eighties versus low eighties, like it was last year. So nothing, you know, scintillating or spectacular, but just something more major league ready. But yeah, I think my two questions about magical are like one, you know, the base running is a big one. And I think part of it is, you know, when you look at the way he came up through the minors, I think, you know, part of me says like, well, he just, you know, he needs to learn his limitations, but part of me wonders like, a lot of his minor league success and college success was built on just out hustling, uh, just preying on the weaknesses of less polished competition, just amateur level or low professional level. And then you look at the stolen base numbers, the percentage drops as he goes up the ladder, the, uh, you know, the base room mistakes when you see him made at Chicago, just thinking like, well, maybe he's just somebody who, uh, you know, has just thrived on causing chaos. And when that chaos is harder to create, you know, what's left. 
So I think that's really my biggest question in terms of just how much he contributes beyond singles, you know, whether he can, you know, whether the hustle doubles are there or whether the hustle doubles turn into hustle outs at the major level and the, 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 the stolen bases turn into caught stealings. And then if, if that's like a real limitation for him, then I think he needs to be closer to gold glove level. Maybe not Yolmer Sanchez good, but I think he has that in him just watching him in, in Charlotte and uh, Birmingham and such. Like he made a lot of great plays around the bag or sec- other side of second base, like with really quick hands, really quick exchanges, good range. So I think he has that in him to be, if not gold glove, because that's tough to do in any given year, just close to it in a, mm-hmm. in a realistic contender. Yeah. With the base running, I think one of the things to track is how successful he is from first to third. Because if he's going to be batting ninth and he hits a single, we are assuming it's going to be Tim Anderson next. And we'll talk about Tim Anderson here in a moment. But if Anderson continues to hit at the pace that he has in 2019 and 2020, it would really go a long way if Nick Madrigal can be more efficient in being able to get that extra base on a single from Tim Anderson, especially a single to right field. If Madrigal has improved his base running abilities and with those improved base running abilities, he gets a little bit more speed as far as being out throws to third base, because if he can't, and he is not this 60 or 70 grade runner that everybody was talking about when he was at Oregon state and he's more of a 50 grade runner. Well, then it kind of lowers expectations of the overall player profile of Nick Madrigal, right? If he can only go from first to second on Tim Anderson singles, well, that doesn't really put you in the best spot at that second uh, second spot in the lineup as far as being able to produce a run every single time you get into those types of situations. So that's one of the minor things I'm going to be watching for is how effective Madrigal is getting that extra base, especially with Anderson batting behind him and try to make it first to third uh, or even first to home. If Tim Anderson would, would be able to hit a double, because I think that could really help turn over the, the lineup and uh, get those extra runs. The white Sox are definitely going to need if they're going to win this American league central. So I mentioned Tim Anderson. So that's second base for the Chicago white Sox and moving over to short, there was a pretty heavy debate, Jim, Uh, When MLB Network was ranking the top players in the league and they do their top 10, uh, the shredder uh, top 10, as far as the players uh, by position before the season starts. And uh, Tim Anderson didn't enjoy his ranking as far as the top 10 of shortstops in major league baseball. Uh, he's going to be on the cover of a video game. He's becoming one of the most popular White Sox players overall, uh, one of the more popular players in all of Major League Baseball. And he has vastly improved in 2019 and in 2020. Where would you rank Tim Anderson among the shortstops in Major League Baseball today before the 2021 season starts? I don't think I'd place him in the top five just because shortstop's really good. You know, it's no mm-hmm. knock on Anderson to say he's not a top five shortstop just because the league is pretty deep there. Like I'm looking, you know, I, I kind of made a list like Trevor Story, Francisco Lindor, Trey Turner, Corey Seager, Alexander Bogarts. It's like, seems like a good top five mm-hmm. in some order. But then the next five, you know, when you have like Carlos Correa and you have, uh, you know, he's coming off a down year and you have like maybe – uh, just some other like case like Javi Baez having a weird year, uh, perhaps because of video, perhaps just because he has some weaknesses that can be exacerbated. Like it's a case where, you know, maybe he can sneak in there and be like comfortably like top seven, top eight. I think that's mm-hmm. probably where he is right now. How about you, Pinos? Where would you rank Tim Anderson 
among the top 10 shortstops in baseball. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that uh, I, I think that there was a lot of uh, a lot of angst about that ranking, uh, but I, I didn't think that they were too far off. I mean, I think he's somewhere in the back portion of the top 10. Um, I, if you look at just the last two seasons, which I think that most would agree that Tim Anderson's you know star turn was would, would encompass 2019 and 2020. Um, you know, in war, the last two seasons for shortstops, he, he's seventh and he's seventh with a BABIP that's pretty close to 400. And I'm wondering just how much of our perception of Tim Anderson as somebody who's, you know, should be higher than than 10th place or so is is predicated on him being able to post a Babbitt that's that high. I mean, he's fast. He has a line drive stroke. He hits to all fields. He has pretty much everything working for him that you would want if you wanted to design a player that would post a high Babbitt. But I don't think that he's going to settle in around 400 long-term. I mean, you you want to, like, not even guys like Jeter and Ichiro, who have been like the batting average kings of the last 20 years, are able to do something like that. I think that his average is going to come down. I think he's going to post something, maybe close something in the 300 to 310 range. And I think that that, that type of player is is probably more suited to something around 10th place than, uh, than, than, you know, something dramatically higher than that. And it's because of the depth of quality at shortstops, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's not an insult. I mean, he's, he's a very, very good player, but there's so many good shortstops in the major leagues right now. That's it's, it's, it's tough competition, frankly. Steve stone posted this question when talking about Tim Anderson with Jason Benetti in the first spring training broadcast and stone Jim brought up this point that Anderson is going to have to make a decision this year. Does he want to be the 310, 320 hitter? that only hits 15 home runs or does he want to be the 280 average hitter, but he hits 25 home runs because Steve stone believes that Anderson has potential to have either of those types of seasons. And I think I agree with Steve stone. If Tim Anderson wanted to hit 25 home runs in 2021, I absolutely think he can do it. He will have to sacrifice the batting average to do so because he's going to be swinging a lot harder uh, and be more focused on putting the ball over the fence rather than just putting the ball in play. Which version of Anderson do you prefer for the 2021 Chicago White Sox? I think I would say the 280 guy just because, well, one, he really hasn't been a 280 guy since his rookie year. He's either been like 240 <laughs> or, you know, a 320. Like he doesn't really have that middle ground. We don't know so, what it looks like. <laughs> yeah. So it's partially like I wouldn't, I just wouldn't mind. I'd, I'd appreciate the novelty. So there's that. Uh, I think also with Anderson, like when I think of him as 25 homers, I think of a guy as like, well, if he's hitting 25 homers, he could be hitting more doubles too, because it seems like his power. He gets in hot streaks and then he gets in streaks where he just kind of pokes singles, uh, either grounds them to the left side or pokes them, flares them out to the right center. Maybe he can, you know, get a double here and there, but the, he can go some, you know, some weeks without hitting a homer. And I, I think it's more of a product of that swing and that, you know, kind of BABIP oriented player he is. But I think if he were able to hit 25 homers while batting 280, I think that also means that he's probably has more doubles too and just more extra base hits of some variety because he's hitting the ball harder and, and putting more into it. And then maybe if he's actually you know, being a more consistent power threat, maybe that brings up the walks too, to where you don't need him to hit 310, 320 to have an average to above average OBP. Maybe the 280 is good enough to get there by itself. How about you, Pinos? Which version do you think would benefit the White Sox the most in 2021 of Tim Anderson? 
So, so I have a confession to make. I have not done a in-depth analysis of the batting average homers trade-off in wins, weighted runs created plus, and I don't know offhand which of those two players actually would post a higher number there. So I am just going to read the question as what I think Stone intended it as would, would you suggest that, you know, at three, at a 310 batting average and 15 homers, would you want Tim Anderson to trade some of that average for some extra power? And I, I think that my answer actually, I might, I might go in a different direction than Jim. I think my answer might be no, just because he's being used in a leadoff capacity with a bunch of guys behind him that are well-suited to driving him in. And I think a guy who, you know, who hits 310, because Andrew, he's not going to walk much, right? And then mm-hmm. if you have a guy who's hitting 280 and walks around the level Anderson does, well, you have to ask yourself, how happy are you if with a leadoff hitter that's got like a 310 on base percentage? And, you know, a guy like, um, you know, a guy like Madrigal at the bottom of the order, I mean, granted, he's going to have guys on base for him too, but, you know, you could, you get those guys on, on base back to back and that, you, that could lead to a lot of big innings. So I think, uh, I think I, I'm leaning towards more towards getting Tim on base more versus, versus the extra power. But uh, I mean, I could, I could definitely see both ways being a, a valid way to attack that question. It's a good one posed by Stone. In my head, I am hearing our listeners say, why not both? Why not a guy who hits 310 <laughs> and hits 25 home runs? Why and not 320? 320. Yeah. If Tim Anderson hits 320 in 2021 and he hits 25 home runs, that might vault him, Jim, into top five shortstop status in the league, would it not? Yeah, especially if he's not like you know, having uh, one of his bad defensive seasons. Like if he's mm-hmm. an average shortstop, like unremarkable shortstop, but just – not a liability, not creating issues with uh, errors on makeable plays, then yeah, that's some, especially, you know, with a batting title challenging for a batting title last year, and then like coming theoretically close to it again, if he's around the same mark, you know, a lot of it, you know, has a lot to do with like how DJ LeMahieu is doing since he seems to be the guy right now. Uh, but, you know, based on that context and if Magical's healthy, maybe he's there too. Like challenging for the batting title three years in a row, adding power, the speed probably isn't going where maybe he's not, running as actively as he did earlier in his career, but he's still a plus runner and a stolen base threat. Like, yeah, it's probably like a five win player, six win player, depending on how the defensive metrics break. And yeah, it's not going to get many guys better than that. All right. So moving from shortstop to the last infield position to preview for the 2021 Chicago white Sox. And uh, they really could use him to bounce back. And he's starting to show a little bit of life here during spring training. That's Yohan Makata. And Yohan Makata's tenure with the Chicago White Sox, we've got a few years now, and uh, it's it's been up and down. I don't think I would use consistent uh, as far as the, the, the right word to describe Yohan Makata's career with the White Sox so far. And uh, I think there are... Well, we asked this question a few weeks ago when we kicked off the 2021 preview in the podcast. What is the most pressing issue in this spring training? And for our listeners and followers, Pinos, they said, Yohan Makata's health. They need, they want to see if Makata can return back to his 2019 form because if he can, wow, then the White Sox in 2021 have serious potential what are your feelings about Mikata going into the 2021 season? And do you think he still has it in him to bounce back and regain his 2019 form after a COVID impacted 2020 season? 
I think he still has it in him. I mean, he's by all accounts, he says he's feeling strong now. I mean, so that that's great. I mean, it sounds like by his, by his own words, he's, he's passed, uh, he's passed the weakness that was brought on by the illness. So uh, I, I see no reason why not. I mean, he's still a very young player. He showed us what he was capable of two, two seasons ago. I think it's awesome that the White Sox had this offensive explosion last year with quite frankly, a guy that many people thought would be the team's best player uh, just, just kind of stuck in a, in a rut as a result of COVID. So um, maybe just because he was out of sync last year, there could be some sort of adjustment period earlier on where maybe he's doesn't all click right away. But um, I, I think you're going to see a, a star level player come, come mid summer, you know, at the, at the very latest, I think he's going to be back and it's going to be all systems go. How about you, Jim? What are your expectations for Mikata in 2021? Well, you know, on the subject of spring training strikeouts, one of the things I, I feared for Mankata that might just might be getting his timing back. And given that he's been struggling or like in his past, he's had ruts where he struck out like above 30%. I could imagine like the strikeouts during spring training spiking on him and getting carried away. But right now he's only at five over 28 plate appearances, which is fine. Like if that were what he brought into the season, Absolutely. that'd be terrific. So, uh, you know, so no flags there. And, you know, Part of me wonders, you know, we talked about this before, like in a previous episode, but what you're talking about, Mankata's strikeout rate being cool and Colin's strikeout rate being great and Larry Garcia, like all these guys who normally strike out or have that category get out of control relative to walks, like all looking good. And it makes me think like, yeah, maybe it's just a really good condition to be the ball right now. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, you see like Jake Berger and Mike Rodolfo and guys who have had timing issues because of layoffs and health, um, you know, having issues putting the bat on the ball and seeing Mankata not having that kind of issue making contact makes me feel optimistic at this point. I think, you know, I would set my expectations, I guess, maybe a little bit below 2019 in terms of what he can provide just because we're in uncharted territory. And given that he has the tendency to miss uh, a week or two here and there with some kind of leg issue, he hasn't proven that he can uh, even without COVID, you know, make it through a season without, you know, any kind of like nagging issue. So I don't want to put like, I know he thinks he can do better in 2019 and I think he mm -hmm. has the talent too, but I just, you know, given that he hasn't quite put it all together yet. And, you know, part of it too is like uh, what I thought was admirable about his season last year is that his defense improved and he drew more walks. Like he found a way to make use of even his compromised physical state by shoring up some of the things that maybe aren't as uh, reliant on physical ability, like being hundred percent bat speed, physical speed range. Like he, he shored up what he could shore up given his, uh, you know, compromised limited physical state. So I'm hoping to carry that some over it. So where he walks a bit more to where he makes more plays and you, you combine that kind of knowledge with him at hundred percent and maybe he can explode, but I think, you know, I think it's healthy for everybody just to think he can come close to 2019. And if he surpasses that, that's incredible. One of the things I'm going to be watching for early with Makata is the power. I think he's got the, if you just look at doubles and home runs, like 60, like some type of combination when combining doubles and home runs that I think Makata has the ability to hit 60 plus in 2021. Right now, my head says P knows that that's more of a 20 home run for 40 double type of season, which that's very on par with like what Melky Cabrera uh, could. We, we thought Melky Cabrera could do with the White Sox uh, when the White Sox did sign Cabrera. But 
for Mikata and the tease that we, I shouldn't say tease, but what we have seen in 2019 and hoping that he regains that form. If I told you that in 2021, Yohan Mikata only hits 20 home runs, but he also hits 40 doubles. Is that enough power from Yohan Mikata in 2021 to satisfy your expectations? I think maybe if if uh, if it's a situation where he misses some time with injury and maybe you're talking about a season where he's got closer to like 520 plate appearances as opposed to something over 600. Uh, I think that if you told me that he was uh, if he was healthy and played, you know, 150 games, number one, I'd be thrilled with that. And I'd smile and say, hey, that's great. But then you told me that those power figures, I'd say, yeah, maybe I'd be a little bit disappointed if you only got to 20 over that amount of playing time. I think that I think that a healthy Yoan Moncada probably should be pushing 30 home runs if he's able to play 150 games in a season. How about you, Jim? If, if it was 20 home runs and 40 doubles, how would that meet your expectations? Would, would you consider that a disappointing 2021 season from Mikata? Yeah, I'd see my first question is along the same lines. How many games? Like if it's 130, mm. yeah, that's great. If it's 155, a little bit disappointing. I think I would also want to know whether he's stealing bases, whether he's got his legs back and is stealing like 15 to 20 bases that add some value, add some bases to where you don't need the homers also maybe where he's batting in the lineup and whether he's getting on base for guys who can knock him in. Um, if he's batting second in front of Abreu and Jimenez and Robert, like maybe, you know, if he's drawing a few more walks like he did last year, plus doubles, plus, you know, a decent average and not, you know, killing himself with strikeout rate, uh, then I think that's fine. So, but yeah, just when you look at the, the best Mankata swings, the, you know, the triumphant uh, nonchalant bat drop as the ball sails <laughs> 20, 25 rows deep. You see a kind of the swing plane launch angle culminating and you think like that's, he could do, he could strike that pose 30 times in a season. Again, that's what I'm just going to be focusing on for Mankata to start the year. We're, we're starting to see in spring training. He's got a good average. He's sitting 292. He's got a good on base percentage. He's slugging his 417. It's just spring training, but this is the part of recovering from COVID and getting his legs back underneath him and getting back into rhythm. Where's the power stroke at? Uh, Cause I, I am confident that he's going to find ways to get on base, but how long will it take him for, to, for him to feel comfortable to really crush the baseballs that we saw him crush in 2019, because that will tell me, okay, 2019, Yorn Mikata's back. The guy who could hit 290 and hit three, you know, 30 home runs and post a 500 slugging um, percentage along with Abreu and Jimenez, he's back. And now this lineup could be terrifying for everybody in the American League. If he's struggling to slug above 450, if he's in the low 400s, uh, then I wonder if uh, as far as the lingering effects of COVID is still impacting as far as his timing to get his power stroke back. But as you mentioned, Jim, Yohan Mikata still found himself or found ways to be useful and beneficial to the 2021 White Sox. That part I'm not doubting. I think the only area I'm concerned about for Mikata is his power stroke coming into the season. So that's the White Sox starting infield. Again, we are projecting it'll be Jose Abreu, Nick Madrigal, Tim Anderson, and Yohan Mikata. That's one of the best infields we've seen in a while uh, for the White Sox. And for the first time in a long time, there are no major questions of, are we sure we want this guy starting in the infield? Uh, but let's go to the 26-man roster. This will be our last topic before we start answering some P.O. Sox questions. 
But I pose this question to you, Jim, assuming Lurie Garcia makes the roster, which I think he will. And Tony the Russa only carries four outfielders. I know Garcia could play in the outfield, but the four outfielders being Jimenez, Robert Eaton and Adam Engel will preview that position next week. Are there any other infielders that you look at that you can say, I think they're going to win the final roster spot. I think that this infielder is going to win that 26 man roster spot. And who would that be? Well, I think if, you know, Nick Madrigal can't quite participate in regular baseball activities on a regular schedule, then maybe Danny Mendix sneaks in as the utility infielder and Larry Garcia is your second baseman. But I think right now, if, Magical's healthy and playing most games. And if Garcia is the backup infielder because Adam Engel is the fourth outfielder, then I think uh, I'd rather have three catchers on the roster because I th- think there's more ways to make that work. I saw, I, I think it was uh, Penals was talking to James Fox and they're talking about the <laughs> last roster spot. And it was before, you know, I knew or had a sense of whether Grandall could be healthy enough or uh, magical healthy enough to consider it, but they're talking about the last roster spot and saying like, there's no reason to play Danny Mendick. If Garcia is healthy, if Engel's healthy, if everybody above them is healthy, like you have to make up reasons for Mendick to get in the game with Collins, at least if you need a uh, left-handed power threat late in the game, if you need a you know, reason to play Grandall freely at first base or DH without you know losing uh, you know the, the backup catcher somehow to injury, um, if you want Collins just to be part of the preparation conversations with Luke Roy and Grandall, like learning how to plan and and, and listen to uh, you know Ethan Katz talk about how pitchers are preparing for what hitters, just you know being exposed to that. I think that's a lot better use of that roster spot than Danny Mendick who, you know, he's a credible utility infielder for certain teams, but just not on this team because Garcia basically does what he does, but better. How about you, Pinos? Who do you think could win that final roster spot for the White Sox 2021-26 man roster? Yeah, I feel, I feel like uh, I think, think Jim dropped a couple spoilers in there on the way I lean on this, but uh, Sorry. yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I, that's, that's basically how I feel about it. I, I look at Danny Mendick and I say, he is not the second best option at any position right now. Like there's, there's not really, there's not really a role besides covering for somebody hurt that I see that for Danny Mendick. And there's not, I mean, I, I think he's, I think he's fine to be the, you know, the infield depth. I mean, I, if someone goes down and he bring, comes up to the roster, I'm, I, I have confidence on his ability to be able to fill in admirably for a short period of time. I mean, he's that it's nothing really against him. It's just that Collins, I think fills a little bit more of a niche right now. And, and I think he has, it, albeit not tremendous value, I think more value to a healthy white Sox team than Danny Mendick. And if Mendick is needed, you can call him up at a moment's notice and worse comes to worse. You just have to make it work for the rest of the game. And someone gets hurt and, and Mendick's not there yet. Well, you guys had questions for us, so let's tackle them next in P.O. Socks. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine. 
or helping and becoming a friend of Socks Machine at patreon.com slash Socks Machine by becoming a Patreon supporter where you get to submit P.O. Socks questions to us. And we always have a bonus P.O. Socks segment uh, for you for the Patreon exclusive podcast, which you can always sign up for at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And this time we have a couple people answering your guys' questions this week in P.O. Socks. We got Jim and Penals. And we'll start with Chef Eric. And Jim, Chef Eric is asking, is Nick Magical a longtime solution for second base for the Chicago White Sox in the same way as Yohan Makata, Luis Robert, and Aloy Jimenez are? I would say no, or at least not yet, uh, just because you know, I wrote about it during the offseason as we waited for the free agent uh, market to find homes. And you know, there, were, there was Tommy LaStella, you know, good second baseman, good utility player with low uh, strikeout rate. There was Cesar Hernandez, who was a gold glove winning second baseman who could get on base at above 350 clip for uh, Cleveland. And there was Colton Wong, who was a gold glove caliber second baseman who could, you know, he had a down year last year, but years before he was like a 350 OVP guy. And you look at those players and you look at Magical and they get to the same value different ways, but it's a player you can replace, especially if Madrigal has the flaws uh, in the field, or at least, you know, especially I, I think more pressing are the base running ones, because I think being able to get extra bases, like you said, going from first to third or stealing, you know, 15, 20 bases or more. I, I think that's a key part of his value, making him special is versus like, you know, slightly above average as an offensive player. I think though, if he is able to shore that up and is able to be like Placido Polanco, uh, who's with an insane competitive streak, I can see him being like part of the identity, um, just being somebody who is um, greatly valued and, and perhaps overvalued by the White Sox. Or maybe he's like the, how, how Penals feels about Sal Perez, other teams <laughs> feel about Nick Madrigal. Just like, oh, this guy, you know, he's overrated. He, oh, he's a slap hitter, but he doesn't hit homers. But like White Sox fans, like he's the reason we win. Like <laughs> having that kind of role just because, you know, when he is, you know, when you look at his game in college and you look at him in the minors and, and you think like maybe it's just the speed of the game thing he'll get used to, like theoretically a gold glove second baseman who makes all the plays at second can, uh, never strikes out in a strikeout heavy league. Um, you can hit 340. Is a guy you hate seeing at the plate if you're an opponent with a runner like on, on second or third base with two outs just because like I'm thinking like Ichiro when, when the White Sox faced him in his prime, just like you knew you were going to strike him out. So you're just hoping for an out somewhere else. And like Mark Burley could never get him out because he just put the bat on the ball. Whereas Mark Burley could, you know, cause fits for other hitters by getting them to overswing. Like, you know, Ichiro never did that. Madrigal won't do that. And he's just going to be a pain to see when you really want an out because he makes outs hard. So I, I think that's going to be the key is just uh, limiting the ways that he frustrates fans to where fans then fall in love with him, maybe overly so. Well, Chef Eric, thank you so much for your question. I think this next question is a good Pinos question. So Pinos, I'll ask you this question first, and it comes from Derek King. Derek's asking, what order do you predict these White Sox infielders will finish in total war or we can use Fangraph's war. Yoan Mikata, Tim Anderson, Nick Madrigal, and Andrew Vaughn. There's a follow-up. Derek also asks, then, same question, but in weighted runs created plus. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I probably would rank them in the order that you listed them. I would have Moncada first, followed by Anderson, followed by Madrigal, followed by Vaughn. And then if we're talking about weighted runs created plus, I will go, I think I still, I think I still start with Moncada mm. and then I probably go to, that's, mm. that's very interesting. I was I, I stopped myself. I was about to say Anderson, <laughs> I might go, I don't know how this could be possible. Let's say Moncada, maybe Vaughn Anderson Madrigal in that order. Hmm. That might be, that might be how I go. I just think that Vaughn playing DH is going to sap so much war from, from yeah. his, from that figure. I mean, there's only so much, we know he can play first, but he's not there because he can't play first base. He's there because the white Sox have a first baseman and war says, well, just anybody could step into this spot. And I think that he's kind of the, from a war perspective, the, the, the victim of uh, just uh, the white Sox having an embarrassment of riches at first base DH right now. But uh, that, that might be the, that might be, be the way I spin it. I'd, I'd go, uh, I think I'd go Moncada, Vaughn, Anderson, Madrigal. How about you, Jim? What order would you put them as far as in war and, and weighted runs create a plus? I had the same answers with uh, the, uh, the order as given and then Vaughn being second and, and weighted runs create a plus. And I think it's gonna be fascinating just because you have two completely opposite profiles and, and Vaughn and Anderson, like Vaughn with the you know, super patient, but not, you know, not, I would say, patient not passive like i don't think his bats watching him so far or a guy who will take every first pitch and then fall behind oh two i think he's he's uh selective or patient in the good way where i think if they start challenging him and make him hit his way aboard he'll do so but i think there's just gonna be a, a big enough discrepancy in the walk column and the obp column to where and and with vaughn not giving up much in the way of slugging to where Anderson won't be able to beat him and way to runs create plus, which does weigh uh, OBP more than just like a straight OPS does. I could see them ending in the same neighborhood OPS wise, uh, just because I can see maybe Anderson or Vaughn having to settle for, you know, more, you know, battling at bats, more just kind of muscled singles as he gets used to major league stuff. And, and maybe just uh, the, the slugging percentage, not getting out of the four hundreds, uh, you know, for at least for a lot of the season. Um, but I, I think the OBP uh, gap will be big enough to where Vaughn will beat him out. Well, Derek, I'm going to disagree with both P. Knowles and Jim. I think in war, I'm going to go Anderson. I'm going to go with Makata. I'm going to go with Vaughn. And then I go with Magical. Weighted runs create a plus. I think I'd go in that order. I think Tim Anderson's going to lead out of these group of four players in weighted runs create a plus, followed by Makata followed by Vaughn. I think Vaughn and McCotter are going to be real close. I think I, I would expect all three of those guys to be above 120. And I know that's a pretty high bar for a rookie who's never played much of minor league baseball, but I, I'm pretty high on Andrew Vaughn's ability, his rookie year uh, to be at 120. Nick Madrigal, I'm thinking 95 for what it runs credit plus. I don't think it's anywhere near what Mikata Anderson and Vaughn are going to do offensively on that end but that is a very good question Derek to pose as far as looking at total war because you look at all aspects of playing the game and then what weighted runs cradle plus just looks at the offense and uh do you, do you think Anderson yeah. gets above it gets to the top of the list because he puts it all together or do you think it's because like Mankata slips or maybe misses some time well, or 2019 Anderson had a 129 weighted runs cradle plus I know he hit 335 uh, to get to that 129 number. And last year he was at 142 uh, with a 322 
batting average, but he did slug 529. That's just the thing. Anderson has slugged above 500 the last two seasons. I think Mm -hmm. that is a really eye-opening stat. And it kind of goes back to our conversation of, you know, what kind of player do you think and or what kind of hitter we think Anderson can be but in 2019 and 2020 he slugged above 500 and I think that if he continues to do that Jim that's why I think that Anderson could have a weighted runs created plus 130 and above where for me I'm still skeptical on how much power Yohan Mikado regains and maybe his power level is not quite there to his 2019 form when he had a 140 weighted runs created plus I think he easily can get there if the power stroke returns but right now out of those three batters I am most confident that Anderson can post a 125 or more weighted runs created plus and that's why I put him at top Mikata second Vaughn third yeah, Anderson's weird just because last year he had the a career high ISO and a career high ground ball rate I know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so I don't know which one's gonna give <laughs> Yeah, something does have to give. You can't keep doing that, or at least one wouldn't think you could do that. But it goes back to the intro of the show. Will the bab of God strike down on Tim Anderson with great vengeance as he continues to defy them? I hope he does, because that would be good things for the 2021 Chicago White Sox. But Derek, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Azenrec, and Azenrec is asking a follow-up question to our, to our 26-man roster question, Jim, that we had before going to P.O. Sox. And Azenrec is asking, how set is the roster? Do you think the White Sox have a good sense of who will start the season on the 26-man and who will be on the taxi squad? Is there much, if any, evaluation going on in Glendale or is the team just making sure the players get their reps in and avoiding injury? It seems like it's largely set to me. It seems pretty anticlimactic um, just based on, uh, you know, Rodon, especially showing up fairly healthy so far. I think, you know, he's the favorite at uh, fifth starter and hasn't done anything to lose that yet to Reynaldo Lopez. Same thing with like Lucroy, if, especially if, with, depending on his contract situation, there may be no reason to let him go unnecessarily. Uh, for depth. So when you look at that spot and if Andrew Vaughn comes up, I think that's mainly probably the biggest question is if Vaughn is not the DH, then that opens up some permutations that weren't there before. Um, but if we think Vaughn can somehow get there, whether it's because there's an extension or because they stop or they decide every game counts this year, then I think it's largely settled. And I think it's like, I, I think the taxi squad, I think will be the interesting one or like how they divide up taxi squad versus Schaumburg or the alternate training site, whether they um, rotate guys in and out, depending on who needs action. Like right now I look at the like 40 man roster and like Sebi Zavala is the only guy I think who is like a good taxi squad guy just to have around and travel because he's not part of big plans. But if, you know, some kind of disaster struck and needed him to catch a game or two, like he'd be fine doing it. Uh, but they don't have really any hopes pinned around him developing or being anything but a third, fourth, fifth catcher. Otherwise, everybody else seems like they need reps against live pitching. Do you agree, Pinos, with Jim as far as how set the roster is? Yeah, I mean, it feels like it. I mean, I I feel at least confident in the logic on, you know, retaining a guy like Collins over over Danny Mendick. And I haven't really heard a lot of rumblings that would that would suggest that Mendick is going to come up and usurp him. I think that um, the bullpen pecking order, you know, it's it seems like it's it's fairly well established. Like, I don't see that there's going to be like just this hot competition to be the last guy. Um, so I, yeah, I'd say it's mostly set. Well, as in rec, thank you so much for your question. 
And thank you to everyone that submitted PO Sox questions this week for this episode. If you have a question or topic that you'd like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. And if you haven't already, you can help support us and become a friend of the podcast and of the site at Sox Machine. I'm sorry, at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, which on SoxMachine.com, uh, Jim has laid out the different tiers of, of support. Uh, we have a $2 tier, a $3 tier, a $5, and a $10 tier. Uh, that's a month as far as support on patreon.com slash socks machine, which are Patreon supporters. Uh, you get exclusive content. You get early access to our new swag items. And speaking of new swag items, something that has flown off the shelf. I can't believe we sold out on the hoodies, Jim. They are incredibly comfortable, by the way. Uh, I think I've worn my hoodie in the week that I've had it five out of the seven days, I feel like Mr. Rogers uh, <laughs> up my hoodie every single day. Uh, so great find, but we did sell out. So can you provide an update to our listeners on what's going on with the socks machine hoodies? Yes, I we're having the basically it's a back order. So we have the product page still open for orders right now. Uh, we have no stock, but I'm going to be putting an order in probably Tuesday for just uh everybody who's bought one since we ran out and then just stack a, or, or, or have a stack of uh, extras at each size. But if you want to reserve your size, especially I would say if you're on the extreme, small or large, you know, small, medium, double uh, XL, those are the ones uh, I would say they're less popular, large and extra large are ones that uh, tend to be more popular or more orders for. But if you're on the smaller or larger size, I would say like try to get a pre-order in just to make sure that I reserve one for you because like, you know, if, should we, uh, you know, have like say five to ten extra ones that aren't claimed? I put them on the store, like they could go in a hurry, especially if I only have like one small left. So, I would say, uh, you know, order one either way because it helps just get the order in. But uh, if you're on the fence and you're on a more extreme size, uh, on like the extreme side of the spectrum for either way, I would say uh, make sure to get an order in just so I have you covered. And our Patreon supporters, they are, some of them are getting a, one of their benefits in which we have the Sox Machine pennants uh, as far as surviving the rebuild with Sox Machine. And of course, all those famous, famous names on that pennant of players <laughs> that we have watched through the rebuilding years and get to remember them uh, somewhat fondly. Um, but Jim, it looks like you shipped out a bunch of those pennants already. And for our listeners that haven't gotten a Sox Machine pennant, how do they get one? Well, uh, I'm working now on the uh, our 10 war supporters. So like I haven't gotten to them yet. So uh, if you're in that $10 a month uh, tier, then just hold tight. You'll be getting yours. I uh, fulfilled all the orders that came in through uh, PayPal and, and, and the store just to make sure that those are taken care of and uh, people don't feel like they got charged for... <laughs> <laughs> for nothing. Uh, but then like, yeah, uh, when it comes to the uh, swag pack, it's part of the swag pack going forward. So until we run out. So at the $5 a month tier, you get a swag pack, which is uh, magnets, uh, coasters, stickers, buttons, uh, whatever we have that's has their logo on it, you'll get it. And then also the pennants until we run out uh, as part of every swag pack going forward. So uh, $5 a month, you get uh, one of those handsome pennants with names. I would say they're not remembered fondly, but it's fun to remember. It's, it's fun to be among people who remember them. 
Yes. And uh, bless your hearts for those that have ordered the Socks Machine Cog t-shirts. Again, they are on sale for just $20, which includes shipping because I do not want to move these as we just closed on our new house in Bridgeport. We are very excited. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. That's yeah, awesome. And looking at all the things we have to move, I don't want to move these t-shirts. So please buy a Socks Machine t-shirt. Uh, before I officially move before the end of the, the month, before opening day, which is on April 1st. And again, you can go to SocksMachine.com uh, to purchase all these items as well uh, and also get involved with the pre-order uh, for the hoodie uh, for those that missed out on before they sold out. Uh, so those are multiple ways that you can help support us. And again, the best way to do it is go to Patreon.com slash SocksMachine. That will do it for this podcast episode. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and making this a three-man weave. I thought it was very successful. Our good friend Patrick Nolan P. Knowles for joining this episode, helping us preview the 2021 Chicago White Sox infield. So, P. Knowles, thank you so much. Absolutely. Glad to do it. Happy to be here. And you can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis and Patrick Nolan, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.